Financial markets have been volatile since the Silicon Valley bank collapsed, and we are days away from a critical Federal Reserve meeting. The government needs to make explicit that for the foreseeable future, uninsured deposits don't exist. Everything's insured. Markets on Edge coming up on this Friday, March 17th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, scientists have strong evidence that the COVID pandemic likely came from an animal in a food market in Wuhan, China. How their theory differs from what U.S. intelligence says. Volcanoes on Venus. Signs of volcanic activity offer insights into its geologic past and future. The envelope, please. It's match day, a big day in the life of future doctors. These stories and the latest from Wall Street coming up, it's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Russian forces have struggled to make significant gains in eastern Ukraine, and their attacks are slowing. That's according to groups analyzing the war. NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports Western tanks and other modern weaponry have started to arrive in Ukraine. The Washington, D.C.-based Institute for the Study of War said in its latest assessment that the overall Wagner Group offensive on Bakhmut appears to be nearing culmination. Wagner's founder, Yevgeny Prigozhin, recently criticized the Russian defense ministry for not providing his fighters with enough ammunition. Britain's defense ministry said the Russian army's attempts to storm the Donetsk Oblast town of Vuladar have slowed and that even local frontline offensives have become problematic due to the exhaustion of combat capabilities. French Defense Minister Sébastien Lecornu says AMX-10 wheeled light tanks have arrived in Ukraine with some already on the front lines. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Kharkiv, Ukraine. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin and a Russian official involved in the alleged deportation of Ukrainian children. As NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports, Russia has denied widespread reports of atrocities in its invasion of Ukraine. Russia is not a party to the court, and a foreign ministry spokeswoman says there's no significance to this arrest warrant. Ukraine calls it historic. ICC President Pyotr Hofmansky says the judges decided to make these warrants public to try to deter further crimes. It is forbidden by international law for occupied powers to transfer civilians from the territory they live in to other territories. Children enjoy special protection under the Geneva Convention. In addition to Putin, the ICC issued an arrest warrant against Maria Lvova-Belova, Russia's commissioner for children's rights. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. President Biden is planning to visit Ireland next month to mark the 25th anniversary of the peace accord between Ireland and the United Kingdom. NPR's Jimena Bustillo reports Biden is hosting Irish Prime Minister Leo Varadkar today at the White House to continue a St. Patrick's Day tradition. The president and Irish Taoiseach both reiterated their commitment to supporting Ukraine in the war against Russia. Varadkar also noted he is looking forward to hosting Biden. To celebrate St. Patrick's Day, Biden is hosting a reception that includes a shamrock presentation. During the presentation, leaders will hand over a bowl of shamrocks, a White House tradition dating back to 1952. The reception will also include a performance from Irish singer-songwriter Niall Horan. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, The White House. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The interim general manager of the MBTA, Jeff Conneville, will soon lift the speed restriction on the entire Green Line. Conneville just announced about 30 minutes ago that by tomorrow morning he expects Green Line trains will be able to run again at normal speeds for the first time since last week. He says some speed restrictions will remain. Some of these speed restrictions are going to require corrective actions and will take longer than others to, to, uh, to resolve and lift. But we are actively working on that now and working through those plans. Speed restrictions also remain in place on portions of other subway lines. Uh, inspectors have been spending the past week rechecking train track inspections and doing other repair work. The restrictions were put in place after the Department of Public Utilities raised questions about the documentation the T provided on track safety. Governor Maura Healy is asking lawmakers to approve more funding to help the MBTA find new workers and keep the employees it has. She made the $20 million request today to help the T with one of its major problems, that being staffing. The uh, move was part of a supplemental budget bill the governor is submitting. Boston's new director of nightlife economy says she's looking for innovative ways to get around the tease problems and the lack of late-night public transportation. Corrine Reynolds tells WBUR she's making transportation a priority for people who want to experience Boston at night. Reynolds says she's also looking to quickly address safety in bars and nightclubs. Boston police have been warning bar and club goers to be vigilant about reports of patrons having their drinks spiked. Medical students in Massachusetts and around the nation today are celebrating Match Day. It's an education tradition where soon-to-be graduates find out where they're heading for training as residents. WBUR's Irina Machavaria has more. At noon, Boston University's fourth-year medical students ripped open envelopes that contained the names of their future destinations. Some cried tears of joy. Others embraced proud family members. William Lee matched for a psychiatry program at Yale. He just became a father, too. We just have a little baby. His name is Leo, who came out two and a half weeks early. So he's two and a half weeks old. He was very excited to come to Match Day, which is why I think he came out. Med students like Lee are in demand. A Massachusetts Medical Society survey finds one in four doctors in the state is likely to leave the field within two years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavariani. Mostly cloudy skies tonight. Temperatures falling to about 39 degrees. Tomorrow should be generally sunny. Some clouds around. Highs about 53. And then for Sunday, sunny, 49 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There's new evidence that the COVID pandemic originated from an animal at a seafood market in Wuhan, China. Specifically, this is new genetic evidence suggesting a raccoon dog at the market was infected in the early days of the outbreak. What's more, this genetic data was spotted last week on a public database, then taken down shortly after by Chinese officials, which is sparking its own country controversy and renewing claims that China's government is still withholding crucial evidence about the pandemic's origins. Let's bring in NPR science correspondent Michaeline Duclef. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So the plot thickens because just a few weeks ago came word that the 
U.S. Department of Defense was offering support that it was a lab leak in Wuhan that was behind the, the outbreak. Um, I, you came on the show and told me the evidence was, was on the flip side for an animal origin, and now there is more evidence in that direction? That's right. That's right. You know, there are a few caveats. Scientists haven't published this, these findings and they haven't been peer reviewed. The findings were presented at a closed door meeting with the World Health Organization on Tuesday. And what is the evidence? Yeah. So back in January 2020, right when COVID was exploding in Wuhan, Chinese scientists went into the Huanan seafood market looking for signs of the virus. Remember, that's the giant market where a few stalls were selling live wild animals. Right. That's the market, right, where the first big COVID outbreak took place? Exactly. And near a particular stall, scientists found genes from SARS-CoV-2 and live virus. It was on a bunch of surfaces, including a cage, a drain, and butchering equipment. This is the stall selling the wild animals. And what's new here is now an international team of, team of scientists have found that this genetic data also contained a large amount of DNA from animals, including a raccoon dog. This DNA is mixed together with genetic material from the virus. Mixed together. Okay, so animal genes and virus genes mixed together. That means the raccoon dog was infected with COVID? Yeah, so I asked that particular question to Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan. She helped analyze this new data, and she said, you know, we, we do not know that yet. We don't have proof of the so-called smoking raccoon dog. We just have the evidence of the animals uh, in the same part of the market where we know that there was virus. Um, before we move on, Michaeline, I keep getting hung up on the detail. What, what actually is a raccoon dog? Yes. So actually, it's not a raccoon or a dog. Huh. It's most closely related to foxes. And yes, yeah, so this new data isn't proof that an animal was the source of the outbreak. But here's what's so tantalizing about it. The samples had a lot of animal DNA in them, more than human DNA. And as Rasmussen told me, this suggests the virus came from an animal versus a person. Scientists know that raccoon dogs, they're wild animals, are highly susceptible to COVID and they shed the virus into the air. What about the fact that we're only hearing about this evidence now, um, but China clearly had it. Does that mean China was holding on to, was withholding this evidence? Absolutely. Last week, Chinese scientists posted the genetic data to a public database briefly and then took it down. These are samples taken in January 2020 and analyzed at least by 2022, and China has, hasn't previously released them. But a scientist working with Rasmussen had been watching that database, and she saw the data go up, and she saw it get removed. And by then, she and others had already downloaded the data, which shows as many have been saying, that the Chinese government has been withholding information about the origins. Here's Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff from the WHO Today calling for more transparency. The big issue right now is that this data exists and that it is not readily available to the international community. This is first and foremost absolutely critical. Not to mention that it should have been made available years earlier. All right. Reporting there from NPR's Michaeline Duclef. Michaeline, thanks. Thank you. The Army, which fell 25% short of its recruiting goal last year, has rolled out a new marketing campaign. And while most of it is fresh, as Jay Price of member station WUNC reports, one part is familiar. The Army unveiled its new branding with a sizzle reel. It features commanders and other soldiers talking about the possibilities being an American offers and revives a slogan the Army hadn't used in more than 20 years. You can be all you can be. 
be all you can be. This iconic tagline ran for two decades through the 1980s and 90s, an eternity in advertising. Originally, it was accompanied by an irresistible earworm of a jingle. Those original ads began running in 1981. That is the moment of Army advertising that people look back to with nostalgia. Historian Beth Bailey is the author of America's Army, Making the All-Volunteer Force. The draft had ended just a few years earlier. The Army was still struggling with the transition to solely volunteers, trying not only to find enough recruits, but bring in better qualified ones. And it badly wanted to reverse deep image problems lingering from the Vietnam War. The move to a new recruiting slogan and a new recruiting campaign was meant to really recast the Army. After a run of uninspiring ads, it settled on what's regarded in the ad world as one of the greatest campaigns of the 20th century. Because America calls for nothing less. So you can be all you can be. 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 Now, that line is back, in ads crafted for different times and different potential recruits. The rebranding has been in the works for years, but at the official unveiling, Secretary of the Army Christine Wormuth said the rollout was accelerated by several months because of the recruiting troubles. We in the Army, and frankly all of the military services, are facing the most challenging recruiting landscape in decades. So it is a perfect time to be launching our new brand. And as a child of the 80s, I am super excited that we are bringing back a reinvented version of Be All You Can Be. Despite the tagline's nostalgia-inducing past, she said recycling it was based on substantial market research. It showed young people are looking for a sense of purpose and a way to build community. So the phrase works for them as well as their parents and others who might influence their career decisions. This was not just sort of a let's reach back to a thing that, you know, we all remember and like. Uh, it, it was put through its paces against other alternatives, but it resonated. It resonated by far the best with audiences of all ages. Army leaders said the rebranding and marketing campaign also targets a cultural gulf that's widened for decades. Fewer families have ties to the military, leaving fewer young people familiar enough with it to consider enlisting. Major General Alex Fink leads the Army's marketing office. This is more than a recruiting campaign. The brand refresh and the creative executions are about reintroducing America to its army. And if you have the will to make the world the best it can be, the army has a place for you. The new campaign is just one way the Army is tackling its recruiting problem. It's also offering incentives for recruiters, bigger bonuses to new soldiers, and promotions for some troops who refer enlistees. But recruiters still have their work cut out. Their target number this year is even higher than last year. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Shri Pishorodi. A few years ago, Pishorodi, her daughter, and her mother flew to India together. On that long flight, Pishorodi told her daughter what to expect. I told my daughter, you know, in India it's crowded, you have to stick with me and never trust the police officers or the auto rickshaw drivers 
because everybody wants a bribe and they'll try to cheat you and you know you have to be careful so once we reached india you know i packed up our passports our documents and all of that into a little bag a briefcase and we loaded ourselves into an auto rickshaw to head down to the train station all three of us got out i paid the auto rickshaw driver i turned around to make sure my mom and my daughter were next to me and before i knew it the auto rickshaw driver drove away with our briefcase that had everything in it and i just my heart sank i started quivering i didn't know what to do and my mom who was around 70 that time said you know what i'm going to go to the police station and my daughter and i were standing there at the foot of the steps to the train station and before we knew it a bunch of auto rickshaw drivers came to us and they were asking us what is the problem so we told them we left our bag in the auto rickshaw and i was just so surprised because immediately they began going around the town and the marketplace and all that trying to locate this auto rickshaw driver and then as we were doing this my mom drives up with this big entourage of police officers and they also go searching out in the city as all this chaos is going on the auto rickshaw driver who dropped us off comes slowly back to the train station and says you left your bag in the car and everything was in place the cash the passports the documents i just immediately thought of what i told my daughter that day when we were flying to india to never trust auto rickshaw drivers and police officers it just renewed my faith in humanity but it also taught me that you know Miracles really do happen. Shri Pishorode lives in Tracy, California, and you can find more stories from my unsung hero wherever you get your podcasts. To share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero@hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com/public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered. Companies applying for federal subsidies through the new CHIPS law must guarantee that their workers have affordable childcare. Advocates say that doesn't address what's at the heart of the country's child care crisis. That story and much more coming up on All Things Considered. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru, introducing the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric. Some slipping and sliding on Wall Street today. The Dow lost one and two tenths percent. That's nearly 400 points. S&P was down one and one tenth percent. Nasdaq dropped about three quarters of a percent. A Newton Biotech company is putting on hold its efforts to develop a drug to treat hot flashes in postmenopausal women. Acer Therapeutics reported today a drug it created was not able to decrease the frequency or severity of hot flashes in a clinical trial. It says it'll now focus on a drug to treat disorders that prevent the body from filtering toxins from the blood. Shares in Acer Therapeutics fell 57% in trading today. This is WBUR Business News comes up on Marketplace at 6:30. It's now 4:20.
Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. 55 degrees now in the Boston area. No rain, but a lot more clouds coming up tonight. Lows about 40. Weekend's looking pretty nice. Should see sunshine and clouds around tomorrow. Comfortable. Highs about 52 again. Chillier on Sunday, though. Plenty of sunshine. A gusty breeze. Highs about 38 degrees. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. By most any measure, Venus is a hellscape. Crushing pressures, a toxic atmosphere, surface temperatures hot enough to melt lead. But we actually don't know much about the forces shaping Venus. New research out this week offers a new volcanic insight. Science reporter Ari Daniel has more. Despite all its hostility, Venus, our nearest planetary neighbor, is pretty similar to Earth, so much so that University of Alaska Fairbanks planetary scientist Robert Herrick calls it our true sibling in the solar system. Aside from Earth, it's the only one that has sort of true mountain ranges and huge variety of volcanic features. Features like lava fields, canals carved by molten rock, and hundreds, if not thousands, of volcanoes. So it's clear that Venus is volcanically active, but it's not clear exactly how active. The time between eruptions could be months, years, or tens of thousands of years. Herrick set out to try to narrow down that time window by searching for evidence of recent volcanic activity. He pored over radar surface imagery collected by the Magellan spacecraft in the early 90s. It's a needle in a haystack search without any guarantee that there's a needle, right? He focused his search around the highest volcano on Venus, Mat Mons, named after the Egyptian goddess of truth and justice. And after a couple months of looking, he found something. So can you see a, you're looking at PowerPoint, hopefully? Herrick fires up a slide with two side-by-side black and white images taken eight months apart of the same spot on the north side of the volcano, each one some 15, 20 miles across. Herrick points out a pockmark. It's a vent, the area where a volcano erupts, discharging its lava, ash, and rock. But the shape of that vent differs between the two images. The outline has changed and things actually gotten larger and look shallower as well. That is, sometime during 1991, Herrick speculates the volcano erupted, forming a lava lake within the vent. Of course, I could have been very lucky and seen the only thing that happened in the last million years on Venus. But I think the reasonable interpretation suggests that Venus is relatively Earth-like in the frequency of volcanic eruptions. Around places like Hawaii and Iceland, Herrick and his colleague published their findings in the journal Science. They hope it'll help researchers understand how Venus has evolved geologically over the last four and a half billion years and where it might be headed. 
It is nice to have a visual confirmation of the volcanic activity on Venus, but given that this was something we had speculated, it's not shocking to have this paper come out. Clara Souza Silva is a quantum astrochemist at Bard College and wasn't involved in the research. Still, she says this confirmation helps us understand what to expect in Venus's atmosphere. A planet that has a lot of volcanic activity has access to these extreme pressures and temperatures below the surface that can produce molecules that are really unusual and otherwise really hard to make. NASA's currently got two missions to Venus in the works, missions that will now be informed by these new findings. We don't just think it's an active planet, we know it's an active planet right now. Herrick's working to develop an instrument for those upcoming missions to monitor volcanic activity on Venus. He's pretty confident now it'll see something once it's deployed. It just has to survive the infernal planet long enough to make its measurements. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. It is officially March Madness. Both the men and women's NCAA basketball tournaments are underway. The men's first round started yesterday, the women's today. Now, a data point here. Last year, the women's final game was the most watched in nearly two decades. Viewership for the women's tournament overall was up 16% from the year before. So, a surge in attention from fans, less of a surge when it comes to media coverage and resources for players. Joining me now is Chantelle Jennings. She's senior writer for women's basketball for The Athletic. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us. Would you agree with what I just said, that it seems like fans are up for this, that there is growing interest in women's college basketball? Absolutely. I think just if you look at the numbers, <laughs> obviously back that up. Um, I'm someone who lives part of my professional life on Twitter. Um, just the following that has happened there the NIL deals, the name, image, and likeness deals that have happened for women's basketball players over the last two years, all of it speaks to the growing popularity of the sport. Huh. So this, the NIL, this is um, college athletes can now make money off their name, their image, their likeness. That's that's across college sports. Why has it impacted women's basketball? Speaking with a lot of experts, you know, coming into it, the main thing was that women, uh, specifically college-aged women, are really good at social media. Um, they have a knack for TikTok, they have a knack for Instagram, and so they've sort of been able to harness that at a time when so much of companies' marketing schemes and plans have sort of gone to social, and that's where a lot of college-aged women are. Are there other factors at play here, other reasons why people might be paying more attention to the women's game? One adage that I've always said, sort of inspired by a very famous movie, is if you broadcast it, people will watch. We've seen more and more broadcasted games for the women's tournament, for the women's season overall. They've been put more on sort of the higher networks, the main ESPN instead of sort of ESPN News or ESPN2. This will actually be the first time in almost 20 years that the national championship game is broadcast on ABC or a main network instead of being on cable. Um, and that matters a lot because that's another 40 million households or so across the U.S. And hmm. so you're just seeing more of these games being put in a place where people can consume them. What about resources? I'm remembering that scandal a couple of years ago when images that made the rounds on social media showed this massive disparity in the size of the weight room that athletes could use during March Madness, that the men had this big fully stocked weight room and the women's was like, it was puny, I think is fair to say. Mary Louise, I think puny is a very kind way to put what the NCAA <laughs> what, what had word done. Would you use? They had, I believe, 
Um, non-existent, probably. They had, I think it was one stack of dumbbells, like four, four different weights. And then um, my favorite part was that it was like 11 yoga mats, which isn't even enough for a full team. Like they didn't even provide enough yoga mats so that everyone on the team could do yoga if that's what they wanted to do. The main thing that we really need to talk about, though, is sort of the TV broadcast rights. And those are coming up again for the women's tournament. The main difference here is that the men's tournament has been sold on its own for the last, you know, several decades, whereas the women's NCAA tournament has been packaged with 28 other championships um, since it was sold to ESPN two decades ago. And so the women in this way really haven't been able to capitalize on that success, on that growing popularity that we were just talking about, because it's been packaged with track and field championships, gymnastics championships, softball and baseball championships. There was the Kaplan report that came out in the wake of that weight room scandal that suggested that the women's tournament alone would be worth somewhere between 81 and 112 million dollars in TV broadcast rights. Its current deal right now with ESPN with the 28 other championships is just 34 million dollars a year. Chantel Jennings covers women's basketball for The Athletic. Thank you. Thanks, Mary Louise. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. It was a tough day for the Red Sox at spring training. They got blanked by the Braves 8 to nothing. The offseason comings and goings continue at Gillette Stadium. Multiple reports indicate the Patriots plan to release cornerback Jalen Mills. The move will save the team $5 million toward the salary cap. Meanwhile, the Pats added a tight end today. They signed to Mike Gasicki from Miami. This is WBUR. Cloudy skies overnight tonight, about 39 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, some sunshine, some clouds back up in the low 50s. Lots of sunshine on Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts Catering. Full-service culinary events for your social or corporate gatherings. Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Gather around. Let's feast. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Nagin Farsad told us about a new ice cream made with actual crickets. It's the perfect dessert for the person disappointed turtle sundaes didn't have real turtle. (laughs) I'm Karen Chi, filling in for Peter Sagal. This week, we'll have more sweet and or creepy stories. Plus, our special guest, Law & Order Sam Waterston, on the news quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In Texas, officials at Fort Hood are investigating the death of a combat engineer who was found dead earlier this week. The Army base was the site of the 2020 killing of another female soldier whose family claimed she was harassed and assaulted at the base. From Texas Public Radio, Carson Frame reports. Ana Basaldua Ruiz had been assigned to the 91st Engineer Battalion since 2021. Army investigators say there's no evidence of foul play, but did not give further details. Basaldua Ruiz's family told Noticias Telemundo that she died by apparent suicide in a maintenance bay at Fort Hood. They also said she was being sexually harassed by a superior. It's unclear if Basaldua Ruiz's death is connected to the alleged harassment or if the incidents were ever reported. Fort Hood has been under scrutiny since the killing of Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen in 2020. That case triggered a national conversation about sexual violence in the military and legislation to change how it's handled. I'm Carson Frame in San Antonio. 
The Environmental Protection Agency has ordered several states to stop blocking the arrival of contaminated waste from the site of that Ohio train derailment into facilities within their state. A number of governors, including Texas, Oklahoma, and Michigan, have attempted to stop the waste from Norfolk Southern, citing safety concerns. Today, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine applauded the EPA announcement while saying there's more work to do and Norfolk should compensate any negative impacts from the crash, including long-term medical issues. Say, look, I'm worried about um, my son, my daughter, myself in five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years. That is a huge concern that people have um, in uh, East Palestine. So again, this fund has to be there. Governor DeWine says that includes compensation for possible loss in property value in and around the site. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. By tomorrow morning, the MBTA expects trains on the Green Line will be able to travel at normal speeds again. It plans to drop some of the speed restrictions that exist on the Green Line. The T's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, says some limited speed restrictions will remain on portions of other subway lines as well. Gonneville ordered the slowdown last week after state regulators raised questions about the documentation the T provided on track safety. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren used a Capitol Hill hearing yesterday to push efforts to secure federal funds to replace the aging Bourne and Sagamore bridges. Warren is a member of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. She highlighted the critical economy and public safety roles the Cape Cod Canal bridges play. Warren also pointed to President Biden's budget as a critical source of funding. There's a significant $350 million down payment toward a $600 million commitment to replace the Cape Cod bridges and protect both the local economy out on the Cape and public safety. The total cost of replacing the bridges is projected to be about $4 billion. Massachusetts lawmakers say it's time for fossil fuel companies to pay up for the decades of pollution they've caused. Watertown State Representative Steve Owens is co-sponsor of a bill called Polluters Pay. State lawmakers unveiled it today. Owens says the concept is simple. If a business makes a mess, it needs to clean it up. We've allowed some of the largest emitters of greenhouse gas to you know, basically pollute for free for decades now. And it's necessary now for us to hold them accountable for that. Owen says the bill would raise more than $10 billion over the next 10 years by requiring companies to contribute part of their profits to a super fund. And the city of Cambridge is hiring a Washington, D.C. consultant to look at how the Cambridge Police Department trains officers. The review comes after the fatal police shooting of Arif uh, Arif Saeed Faisal in January. The Police Executive Research Forum review will take a closer look at the shooting and how the police department's policies and protocols could be revised to prevent a similar outcome in the future. City leaders and community groups are questioning why police needed to use deadly force on the 20-year-old UMass Boston student. Police say the officer shot Faisal after he refused to drop a knife. It's 4.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Tanglewood and the Boston Symphony Orchestra. A trip to Tanglewood this summer opens a world of possibilities. Tickets on sale at bso.org Tanglewood. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. 
Still fairly mild out there right now. 52 degrees, plenty of clouds around for the end of this St. Patty's Day, down to about 40 overnight tonight. Tomorrow we should pull out another mild day. Partly sunny, highs about 52. Sunday should be mostly sunny, breezy, and chillier. Highs only in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the Confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama, available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. On a Friday, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Stocks sank again at the end of a very volatile week, one that started with the collapse of two banks. Despite emergency intervention by the government and some of the world's biggest banks, there are still worries that problems in the banking sector could spread. NPR's David Gura is following this. And David, first walk us through what happened today on Wall Street. Yeah, as you said, markets fell again today, the Dow by about 400 points, even though we had some really extraordinary developments yesterday. These 11 big banks, including J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo, announced this plan to deposit $30 billion in First Republic Bank. They were hoping that would stabilize it and that it would help convince customers there to stop withdrawing their money. They were also hoping it would calm markets more broadly, but it did not play out that way, Ari. First Republic shares have been falling this week because of investors' fears it could be the next bank to fail after Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. And while this deal was big and unusual, First Republic stock sank again by more than 30 percent today, just illustrating something we've been talking about all week, that emotion is driving the markets right now. There is no indication that there are problems with First Republic or with the banking sector as a whole. But investors are worried there's more to come. Then in Europe, there was another deal. Switzerland's central bank offered Credit Suisse about $50 billion in emergency funding. And still, Ari, its shares fell around 10% today. Hmm. And are we seeing this spread beyond the stock market and, and to other parts of the world? We are. A lot of markets are being affected here, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe and in Asia. And because of all the volatility we've seen, investors are piling into gold. They're piling into government bonds. Of course, U.S. Treasuries are seen as just about the safest investments out there. What would it take to restore stability at this point? Well, one thing it'll take is time. And regulators are hoping that people will take a breath. Cooler heads will prevail. But right now, we're just not seeing any signs that's happening. And this story is moving so fast. I mean, just think, since last Friday, we've had two bank failures, emergency interventions, and these really wild price swings. And this frenzy is being fueled in part by social media as people speculate about what's happening, which is aggravating fears even more. Now, some big investors have been saying that if markets don't stabilize, there needs to be bolder action. Peter Orzag, who was President Obama's budget director, who's now the head of the investment bank, Lazard, argues this bank-by-bank -bank approach we've seen is not working. He thinks we need something bigger. Orzag suggests the government should protect all deposits, including those that are larger than $250,000. This is what he proposed today on CNBC. The government needs to make explicit what I think a lot of people are assuming, which is that for the foreseeable future, uninsured deposits don't exist. Everything's insured. That's unlikely to happen, or as I acknowledge, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon, at least. But he said a bold move like that would do a lot to restore confidence in the banking system. So what are you going to be watching for in the next few days? 
Of course, the stock market is not open over the weekend, but at moments like this, weekends can be very busy. It was on Sunday in Washington that the government announced it was going to protect depositors at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank just hours before markets opened in Asia. But without question, pay attention to what the Federal Reserve decides to do on Wednesday to find out how all that we've been living through this week will affect the Fed strategy going forward. As you know, the Fed has been raising interest rates aggressively to fight high inflation. Will policymakers decide to pause those hikes to address all the instability that we're seeing? Andrew Patterson's an economist at Vanguard, and he's among those who thinks the central bank just can't afford to stop because inflation is still too high. No incorporated into their decision-making process, but they have been very clear all along that their primary focus is on inflation. It's a tricky decision, Ari, and Wall Street is divided on what the Fed will do given well, everything. Yeah. And Pierre's David Gura, thank you. Thank you. In Florida's Everglades, few species are more closely tied to the habitat's health than an endangered bird, the snail kite. The Everglades snail kite is a raptor similar to a hawk, and it eats just one thing, snails. As much of the Everglades was drained over the last century, the bird's population declined. Now it's bounced back thanks to an exotic snail. NPR's Greg Allen reports. No one's quite sure how the exotic snails were introduced into the Everglades. They're related to Florida's apple snails and commonly are used in home aquariums. Robert Fletcher, a University of Florida professor who directs a snail kite monitoring program, says the invasive species was first spotted in 2004 and within a few years had expanded through much of the Everglades. And it was around that time where we started to see snail kite numbers increase. On the western edge of Lake Okeechobee, Tyler Beck starts up an airboat. He's the Snail Kite Conservation Coordinator for Florida's Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. He's motoring through the lake's marshes looking for kites. It doesn't take long. He sees one hovering over a clump of trees and cuts the engine. Hear that call? Yeah. That's only when they're irritated. A kite hovers and swoops overhead as University of Florida researcher Brian Jeffrey wades through thigh-deep water. So he's trudging into the, the thick bush there, going to try to get to where we think the nest might be. Jeffrey finds the nest, but it's 20 feet up, too high to count the eggs or to see if any have hatched. Jeffrey directs a field team that monitors Florida's snail kite population. He says they'll be back soon with a ladder to check on the nest. Our Sites are from Everglades National Park in the southern tip of Florida, all the way up to Payne's Prairie, which is near Gainesville, so we have a lot of ground to cover. Snail kites aren't flashy. Males are a slate gray, females a splotchy brown. They get their name from their ability to float in the air. They're one of the last bird species discovered in the U.S. because of where they live, often hidden in the Everglades. Beck says the species is uniquely adapted to subsist almost entirely on a resource usually abundant in the freshwater marshes, apple snails. So... They have these really long talons that hook around the shell and, and get a good grip on it to lift it out of the water and carry it away. Their bill is really long and, and hooked. So they're really adapted just for eating these snails. Over the past century, as much of their habitat was drained and water stopped flowing through parts of the Everglades, the snail kite population plummeted. It was one of the first birds put on the endangered species list in the 1960s. Droughts contributed to the snail kite's decline. Beck says by 2007, there were fewer than 800 remaining. Right shortly after that, though, this invasive snail came in and just started flourishing, uh, getting into every wetland, having these big population booms. And since then, the snail kite population has been slowly 
uh, rebounding. By the most recent count, there are now more than 3,000 snail kites. And although it's early in the season, field teams are finding lots of nests with eggs and chicks. A short airboat ride away, Beck pulls up next to a willow tree. So we got two little, uh, two little nestling uh, snail kites. I think these are probably about 10 days old. And uh, the parents, we can hear them over us. They're upset that we're at their nest. But... Beck and Jeffrey mark the location, water levels, height of the nest, and then motor away. The parents soon return carrying snails. The invader, the island apple snail, is found in similar habitat in South America and is larger than its Florida cousin. It lays eggs in the thousands in pink clusters we see on the stalks of many of the marsh plants. Some believe it may have saved the snail kite. But University of Florida scientist Robert Fletcher is concerned about the potential impact the species will have on the Everglades over the long term. We should be thinking about is how do we restore native snails to get those benefits rather than relying on this non-native species that can have detrimental impacts on the ecosystem. The South American snails may already be taking a toll on some native marsh plants, a sign that there could be trouble ahead. But in the meantime, they've helped pull Florida's endangered snail kite back from the threat of extinction. Greg Allen, NPR News, Moorhaven, Florida. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Child care in America can cost as much as a mortgage, and good child care can be hard to find. It's why many women don't work, why businesses can't fill positions. President Biden has proposed spending hundreds of billions of dollars to solve these problems, but that's gone nowhere, so his administration has come up with a workaround. NPR's Andrea Shu reports. President Biden has said over and over that he wants to make child care affordable for all Americans. This workaround won't achieve that, but it is pretty creative. It's using a bill that Congress passed last summer, the CHIPS Act, as in semiconductor chips. The future of the chip industry is going to be made in America. Now, there's no childcare money in this bill per se. What it does include is $39 billion in federal incentives for chip makers to build new manufacturing plants here in the US. And here's where childcare comes in. The other week, the Commerce Department told companies, if you want a chunk of this money, you must come up with a plan for getting affordable childcare to your workers. Among those who welcomed the news were chip makers themselves. None of this bothers us. That's Intel's Kayvon Esfarjani talking to CBS News. He's said it's aligned with what Intel is doing anyway in a tight labor market. We want to create an environment that it is very enticing, where we are going to grow the talent. Also happy, Stephen Kramer, the CEO of Bright Horizons. They're the largest provider of employer-sponsored childcare in the U.S. They operate daycare centers for Toyota, Tyson Foods, and many others. For us, it was a, a wonderful gratification of many, many years of you know, really pushing the idea that employers have a vested interest. And Julie Cashin of the think tank The Century Foundation says this money will make a huge difference for the estimated 190,000 workers who will build and run the new chip plants. And I think this is also going to help more employers see just how connected they are to the need for childcare. But to be clear to many childcare advocates, this is like a tiny consolation prize. It doesn't help millions of other parents who face crushing childcare costs. It doesn't raise wages for childcare workers. It's not really even in the realm of what they've been hoping for. Our ideal model is not necessarily employer-connected childcare. It is to build out the system that everybody needs. A model Cashin does like is what the 
glassmaker Corning did back in 1980. The company opened a childcare center in the community and still heavily subsidizes it today. Employees get priority, but it's open to other families as well. So far, the government hasn't told chipmakers much about what they're required to do. It has said companies can build a daycare on site or nearby or subsidize care elsewhere, and the cost must be within reach for low- and medium-income families. Annie Dade of Berkeley Center for the Study of Child Care Employment wants the Biden administration to go further, to push chipmakers to support existing community-based daycares. You know, this might often be a woman-owned business or owned by a woman of color. Some of them already offer non-traditional additional hours, which construction and manufacturing workers may need, she says. Dade's concern is that these daycares, which are woven into communities across the country, will miss out on the business from chipmakers and the benefits their dollars would bring. She fears all the money will instead flow to corporate child care providers like Bright Horizons or Kindercare, who do have experience serving large employers. They are really primed to win these contracts. The Commerce Department says it is working on further guidance to be released ahead of March 31st. That's when they'll start accepting applications for the first round of CHIPS funding. Andrea Hsu, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, Russian President Vladimir Putin is now a wanted man. The arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court coming up in about 20 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. No real rain, but a lot more clouds ahead tonight. Lows about 40. The weekend is looking pretty dandy. Should see both sunshine and clouds around tomorrow. Comfortable. Highs about 52 degrees. Sunday should be the brighter day, but the chillier one as well. Plenty of sunshine, a gusty breeze. Highs only about 38 degrees. If you're looking to keep the St. Patrick's Day spirit alive this weekend, the Common Podcast has a rundown of the best places to catch live Celtic music. Find the Common on your podcast app. This is 90.9 WBUR. Tough day for the Red Sox. They got blasted by the Braves 8 to nothing down in spring training play. The time now is 4.49. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. And the Gardner Museum. There is so much to unpack in the art and global travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner. Gardnermuseum.org. Ruben Nielsen of Unknown Mortal Orchestra says he was inspired by his Hawaiian hula dancer mother in his music. When she's dancing, that's her real self. And then everything that happens when she's not dancing is kind of like her waiting to dance again. And I think that we have that in common. The singer-songwriter and the band's new double album, Five. Plus all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. It's been a busy week in the world of artificial intelligence. Google announced plans to roll out new AI tools across email and its other productivity software. And OpenAI unveiled a new version of its chatbot, ChatGPT, that it claims can figure out someone's taxes. Honestly, I... Every time it does it, it's just, it's amazing. This model's so good at mental math. Uh, it's way, way better than I am at mental math. 
That's Greg Brockman, one of the founders of OpenAI, showing off GPT's mad tax skills. But can we really trust AI with our taxes? NPR's <laughs> science correspondent, Jeff Brumfield, has been testing the waters. Hey, Jeff. Hi there. All right, you've had a chance to try out this version of GPT. How good is it? It's really impressive. Um, the previous version would get things like simple math problems wrong, and this one does much, much better. It also according to OpenAI, passed a bunch of academic tests, several AP course exams, and it has the ability to look at images and describe them in detail, which is a pretty cool feature. So it definitely seems to be a lot more capable than the previous version. But you found some problems. Uh, like, <laughs> apparently you got it to tell you some things about nuclear weapons that it's not supposed <laughs> to share? Yeah, I am a big nuke nerd, as, as people may know. And so, uh, you know, OpenAI has tried to put in guardrails to prevent people from using it for things like, say, designing a nuclear weapon. But I worked around that by simply asking it to impersonate a famous physicist to design nuclear weapons, Edward Teller. And then I just started asking Dr. Teller about his work. And I, I got about 30 pages of really detailed information. But I should say there's no need to panic. I gave this to some real nuclear experts. And they said, Look, this stuff is already on the internet, which makes sense because that's how OpenAI trains chat GPT. And also they said there were some errors in there. Okay, so you're not like the next supervillain in the Marvel universe. Not yet. Um, why were there errors if this stuff was already on the internet? Right. I mean, this gets to the real fundamental issue about these chatbots, which is they are not designed to fact check. I spoke to a researcher named Eno Reyes who works for an AI company called hugging face. And he told me these AI programs are basically just giant autocomplete machines. They're trying to just say, what is the next word based on all of the words I've seen before? They don't really have a true sense of factuality. That means that they can be wrong, and they can be wrong in really subtle ways that are hard to spot. They also can just make stuff up. In fact, one of our journalist colleagues, Nareed Eisenman, uh, she actually got contacted this week about a story she supposedly wrote on Korean-American woodworkers, except she never wrote the story. It didn't even exist. Somebody had used ChatGPT to research about, you know, woodworkers and come up with this story that Nareed had supposedly written, but... It wasn't real. It put her byline on something that the chatbot wrote? Yeah, not only her byline, but like the whole story was made up. Whoa. Okay, <laughs> what does OpenAI say about this? Well, they acknowledge that GPT does get things wrong and it does hallucinate. And they say for those reasons, people who use it should be careful. They should check its work. Uh, that researcher I spoke to, Eno Reyes, though, adds that you do not want GPT to do your taxes. That would be a, a very bad idea. From your mouth to the IRS's ears. Jeff Brumfield, thank you. Thank you. Another big-budget comic book adaptation hits theaters today, continuing the story of a young foster kid named Billy Batson who can transform into a superhero just by speaking a magic word. Shazam! Shazam! Fury of the Gods. It's the follow-up to 2019's Shazam, which starred Asher Angel as teenaged Billy and Zachary Levi as Billy's adult superpowered self. Well, both actors are back for the sequel, which sees the hero and his family tangling with goddesses played by Lucy Liu and Helen Mirren. We will annihilate everything. Champions of this realm can do nothing to stop us. Glenn Weldon is here with his take, NPR's resident superhero and host of the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. Glenn, welcome back to All Things Considered. Thanks. Always great to be here. 
I want to go back to when the the original Shazam came out. We said that was 2019. And it seemed like this departure from all these really dark takes on superheroes that, you know, movies like Man of Steel and Mm -hmm. Batman versus Superman. It was like a superhero actually having fun being a superhero. Does the new (laughs) Shazam continue in that vein? Oh, yeah, it does. Uh, To a fault, though, I'd say. You know, I just went back and read my review of that first film, and I was just so happy that we had finally a superhero movie that embraced whimsy and all the essential goofiness of the comics that I loved, which made sense for this particular character, whom we used to call Captain Marvel, but we can't now because of lawyers. But he was always about wish fulfillment. It's a kid who says a magic word and gets powers, right? And for many years, he was the most popular superhero on the planet. His comics way outsold Superman, Batman, all the rest. And in that first movie, Zachary Levi played him like a kid in a superpowered body, but I happened to notice that Zachary Levi didn't seem to be making any attempt to tie his performance to anything that Asher Angel was doing as Teenage Billy, even though they were ostensibly playing the same character. But I didn't care to let it go because, you know, the movie was fun. Um, I now realize I shouldn't have let it go. Hmm. And I, I was looking at some of the early reviews that say this new Shazam goes bigger than the first one, which... I- I mean, that's kind of what people want from a superhero movie, right? Go bigger. Yeah. Well, in this case, goofier, too. They turn up the volume on the goofiness. They turn up the volume on everything. You know, so you get more characters, more villains, more monsters, more buildings getting reduced to rubble and rebar in my beloved hometown of Philly, which is played here on screen by Atlanta. But <laughs> my hometown. You crank up the, yes, of course. But whenever you crank the volume, you get distortion. Or let me put that another way, the fuel mixture of this thing is way off. So the first film was divided relatively equally between Angel's teen Billy and Levi's adult super Billy. But this time out, teen Billy is barely in this thing. It's all Levi all the time, which wouldn't be an issue except for the fact that what Levi chooses to do with all that screen time, which is to make Mary Louise the biggest, the shtickiest, the sweatiest choices he can. He is just mugging his way through this thing. Look, I might not have as much experience as you because I'm not super old like you, (laughs) but I've seen all of the Fast and the Furious movies, lady. It's all about family. Family! Guys, that was a signal. And he's gone so big that the other actors on screen with him, even Helen freaking Mirren, are just left stranded. You know, they're just talking to themselves. That's so interesting because it seemed like in the first film, people really liked what Zachary Levi did with the character. Like, you said yourself you liked it. Yeah, but in that first film, remember, he was one ingredient in the recipe. As we say on Pop Culture Happy Hour, he was the cilantro. But this movie is just a big bowl of cilantro, right? So, And, and also, more importantly, by, by removing Angel's teen Billy from the equation, you just fundamentally break the character. If we never see him as a kid, the whole wish fulfillment aspect is gone. And it becomes even more apparent that Levi is out here doing his own thing. And the notion that he and Asher Angel are playing the same character becomes the least believable thing in a movie that also features, you know, a unicorn impaling a cyclops and Dame Helen freaking Mirren grabbing a cheesesteak. <laughs> that sounds like a, a thumb on the tepid to leaning down scale, Glenn. Uh, I'm afraid so, yeah. Uh, Glenn Weldon, he is host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. And Shazam! Fury of the Gods is in theaters now. Glenn, Shazam, thank you. Shazam to you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. 
And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks Dayquil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vix.com. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Overcast overnight tonight should be relatively mild, about 39 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, some sunshine should burn through the clouds, back up in the low 50s tomorrow. Then for Sunday, brighter and cooler. We should have mostly sunny skies Sunday, highs just under 40 degrees. Start your weekend here tomorrow morning. State abortion laws are changing, and how some we'll hear how some medical residents are trained. Also, how Boston officials are trying to keep St. Patrick's Day parades enjoyable and safe. The news and wait, wait, tomorrow morning here at 90.9 WBUR. The time is 4.59. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin for alleged war crimes that involve forcibly taking Ukrainian children from their families and bringing them to Russia. This involves children as young as four months of age, all the way up to 17-year-olds. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the dust is still settling from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Coming up, we'll look back at a rickety week in banking news and why SVB's failure means a possible sale for a Boston-based investment bank. Scientists have strong evidence that the COVID pandemic likely came from an animal in a food market in Wuhan, China, specifically from a caged raccoon dog that was infected there. And a fleet of seaweed patches that weigh more than 10 million tons could be affecting beaches from Martinique to Miami. It's now five past, uh, one past five. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden is calling on Congress to impose tougher penalties on bank executives whose poor decisions led to their bank's failure. NPR's Asma Khalid reports this follows the recent collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Biden has vowed to hold people accountable for the recent bank failures to prevent a similar future crisis. But in a statement today, he says the current law limits his administration from holding bank executives themselves accountable. The White House says under existing law, the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, has limited ability to claw back compensation or stock gains from senior executives at Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank. Biden is calling on Congress to expand that authority. The president also says it should be easier to ban those bank executives responsible from working in the industry again. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House. Turkey is dropping its objections to a bid by Finland to join NATO. But as NPR's Peter Kenyon reports, it still opposes Sweden's bid to join the alliance. After a meeting with President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Finnish President Sauli Ninistro said he was pleased to see Turkey beginning to take steps toward approving Finland's NATO bid. 
Erdogan praised Finland's efforts to address Turkey's security concerns. They include a demand for the return of more than 120 suspected terrorists. He's heard here through an interpreter. And with a lack of such a positive step, I'm sorry about it, the prime minister can be a nice person. But what matters for us is the result. Erdogan says he hopes Finland's bid can be ratified before Turkey's elections in May. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. The World Health Organization is calling on officials in China to release data that may show a link between animals, animals rather, and the virus that sparked the COVID pandemic. NPR's Jason Bobian reports the data was posted briefly on an international database, but then was abruptly taken down over the weekend. The data was from environmental samples collected at a Wuhan seafood and meat market in the very early days of the pandemic. International scientists spotted the material online and made copies of it before it was taken down. It appears to show that genetic material from raccoon dogs and the virus that causes COVID were found in the same swabs, implying that the animals may have been an initial host. The big issue right now is that this data exists and that it is not readily available to the international community. That's WHO epidemiologist Maria Van Kerkhove. She adds that this information should have been shared years ago. Jason Bobian, NPR News. Wall Street lower by the closing bell as stock in First Republic and regional banks continued to slide. The Dow was down 384 points, the Nasdaq down 86 points, S&P 500 down 43. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There are two new developments in the failure of Silicon Valley Bank that are affecting Massachusetts. The bank's former parent company filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection today. It's looking to sell off some of its business units, and that includes a subsidiary in Boston. Here's WBUR's Beth Healy. In the last five years, the bank's parent, SVB Financial, bought up two companies here, Boston Private Bank and Lyric Partners. The investment banking firm is now SVB Securities. It puts deals together and helps companies raise money and sell stock. The firm's founder, Jeff Lyric, could engineer a buyout to take it independent again. Here's Ben Howe, an investment banker and chief of AGC Partners. Jeff Lyric is a banking junkie. It is both his hobby and his work. He'd be ecstatic to spin it out and keep it going. SVB declined to comment, but a senior executive there says these efforts are underway. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Beth Healy. The second development involves the future of Silicon Valley Bank. It's been taken over by the federal government, and that means new leadership and a new name, Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. WBUR's Yasmin Ammer reports on how the institution's trying to bring back and keep customers. The Bridge Bank CEO, Tim Myopoulos, has assured clients their money is safe. All accounts are now fully backed by the U.S. government. John Keane is the CEO of MindRhythm, a Boston-based medical tech company. He says he's confident keeping some funds in SVBB, but is still taking precautions. I do think you'll see more companies spreading their deposits over multiple banks to prevent situations like this. And certainly a number of the companies that were with Silicon Valley Bank had large sums of money just with Silicon Valley Bank. And I think that practice will probably be modified in the future. According to multiple reports, the government is looking for buyers to take on Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Yasmin Ammer. 
In other news, the acting head of the MBTA says he is optimistic Green Line trains will be running at normal speeds again as early as tomorrow. It's the only line still under a global speed restriction order. That means slower speeds for the entire stretch of the line. The T's interim general manager, Jeff Gonneville, says some limited speed restrictions will remain on all lines. Workers are trying to confirm that track work reported to state regulators has indeed been completed. And the average statewide cost of heating oil is down. The State Department of Energy Resources the survey shows the average is 4.20 a gallon that is 7 cents a gallon less than last week it's an 81 cent drop from a year ago the survey shows heating oil prices range from $3.68 to $5 a gallon forecast Lots of clouds around tonight. Lows about 40 degrees. Weekend is looking nice. Should see sunshine and clouds both tomorrow, about 52 degrees. And for Sunday, lots of sunshine. A gusty breeze, though, should be chillier, about 38 degrees. 55 degrees now in Boston at 507. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by IFC Films with The Lost King. From the makers of Philomena comes the story of an amateur historian who believes she has found the lost burial site of England's notorious Richard III, only in theaters March 24th. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad week for banks. And it all started with a classic bank run. All right, America's 16th largest bank has collapsed. That's the big news right now. The The FDIC just reported the California regulator shut down Silicon Valley Valley. Bank. Uh, Many called it the backbone of Silicon Valley. Last Thursday, customers tried to pull $42 billion out of Silicon Valley Bank, or SVB. Thursday morning was the first time we got an inkling that things were going belly up. Kamal Kapadia is one of the customers who was not able to get her money out. She's the co-founder of a Bay Area startup which had millions frozen in its bank account at SVB. And she began to scramble, realizing the company needed somewhere else to put its money if they could somehow withdraw it. So I ran into Chase. They didn't have a manager available at the time. So I literally like stood on the corner like in downtown Berkeley and I saw a city bank. I ran there. They were not open. So then I moved. I ran to Bank of America and they were able to open an account for me. By last Friday, regulators had shut SVB down, the biggest bank failure since the global financial crisis in 2008. Columbia University law professor Kate Judge says it might be the very first bank run fueled by group text. I mean, I think one of the lessons that we've learned is that in a high-tech environment, uh, you're no longer going to wait for people People to be physically standing outside the door of their bank demanding their money back. Days later, another U.S. bank collapsed, and the government took the extraordinary step of saying it would backstop all depositors' losses at both banks. Thanks for the quick action of my administration over the past few days. By Monday morning, President Biden was reassuring bank customers their money was safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Investors were not convinced. When the market opened, regional bank stocks took record dives. A business update now. Credit Suisse shares hit an all-time low. By midweek, European bank stocks were slipping too, brought about by a crisis of confidence in Credit Suisse. And the unease seems far from over after this already rocky week for banks. So to help us make sense of this, let's bring in NPR political correspondent Susan Davis and chief economics correspondent Scott Horsley. Happy Friday to you both. Hey, Ari. with you. Well, I say happy, but Scott, it's an uncertain time for banks. Any end in sight to this precariousness? 
I don't think we're out of the woods just yet. Anxiety is clearly still weighing on the stock market. Stocks were down today. But there are some encouraging signs out there. Uh, The Treasury Department's been keeping an eye on the amount of money flowing out of smaller banks for any uh, signal of a more widespread run on deposits. And a deputy Treasury secretary told CNBC this morning those withdrawals appear to have stabilized. Uh, In some cases, people are actually putting money back into those smaller and regional banks. Certainly, the government and the private sector have poured a ton of money into banks to help them cover withdrawals and put people's minds at ease. But, you know, confidence is a tricky thing. People feel confident right up until they don't. So I think we'll have to keep a close eye on this for a while longer. Sue, there's some relevant history here because Congress passed a law to prevent this from happening after the 2008 financial crisis, the Dodd-Frank law. But key parts of it were rolled back in 2018 with bipartisan support, and it watered down oversight of mid-sized banks. So has there been any second guessing on Capitol Hill this week as to whether that was the right call, if it contributed to the meltdown? Well, not from the Republican who wrote the law. Mike Kripo is a Republican from Idaho, and he said very plainly this week there is no need for regulatory reform here. But uh, liberals obviously disagree. Elizabeth Warren, who is one of the Democratic Party's most vocal voices on regulatory reform, opposed that legislation in 2018. She called to repeal it this week. But obviously, Ari, with the complications of divided government, that doesn't seem likely. Not to mention the fact a lot of the Democrats that voted for it in 2018 aren't so sure it's the right answer to change it now. Tim Kaine is one of those Democrats, a Democrat from Virginia, he said he and a lot of other senators are waiting to see uh, what the Fed's after action review of what happened at Silicon Valley Bank says that is expected to be done in early May. And they're going to look at that report for possibly some kind of legislative response. But lawmakers, frankly, do not see this as anywhere close to a 2008 level crisis and that the government has the tools to contain it. Well, if repealing the 2018 laws off the table for now, is there anything else Congress might be considering that would be a response here. You know, a group of bipartisan senators did send a letter to the Fed asking them to include in their review an analysis of whether whether letting these banks have concentrated customer bases like Silicon Valley had in the tech and startup industry. Could that increase risk and how? That might spark another regulatory debate. Uh, There's another discussion happening in Congress that could amount to something because there's interest from both Democrats and Republicans looking at the threshold limits for the federal deposit insurance company. Right now, that limits at about $250. $50,000, whether that should be increased. One Republican I talked to, Mitt Romney, said he might be open to it, depending on how it's paid for, because, you know, simply depositors need to always have confidence that their money is going to be there when they need it. Yeah, That's going to be an interesting discussion, because right now, by guaranteeing all deposits at these two failed banks, the government has kind of created an expectation that big depositors elsewhere will also be protected. But Mm -hmm. no one is paying for that extra insurance. It's it's, it's like asking for a new Cadillac when you've only been paying premiums on on a Honda Civic. On the other hand, if a bank fails and its big depositors are not made whole, now there's going to be questions about fairness. Okay, so if legislative fixes are a heavy lift, are there steps regulators could take, Scott, to prevent problems like this going forward? Yes. I mean, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, there were obvious red flags that either went undetected or at least uncorrected. And the Federal Reserve is looking at how it dropped the ball and what it might do differently. As Sue said, we're expecting a report from the Fed on that in about six weeks. Certainly, the people running the bank also bear responsibility for what went wrong, the most responsibility. They're already under scrutiny by regulators and the Justice Department. President Biden said today he wants to strengthen some of the existing tools for holding bankers accountable. Uh, That includes fines, clawing back proceeds of stock sales, and barring those executives from working at other banks. 
Sue, Washington itself could be the cause for financial uncertainty if Congress does not vote to raise the debt ceiling. Has this banking volatility rattled lawmakers around that negotiation? You know, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen certainly hopes so. She appeared this week on Capitol Hill at a Thursday hearing, and she told senators if they failed to raise the debt ceiling, it would be, in her words, completely devastating to the banking industry. Congress being Congress is still likely to push those negotiations to the brink, expected to occur really sometime over the summer. So far, Republicans haven't changed their positions. Speaker McCarthy maintains that Republicans will not vote to increase the debt limit unless they get some kind of spending cuts in exchange for their votes. And President Biden and Janet Yellen again this week reiterated they want a clean increase, no conditions, in part to keep economic certainty and calm. And by the way, if Congress doesn't raise the debt limit in a timely manner, if we even flirt with a government default, that's going to make this week's roller coaster in the financial market look like a ride on the kiddie swings. Not exactly something to look forward to. NPR's Scott Horsley and Susan Davis, thank you both. You're You're welcome. welcome. Russian President Vladimir Putin is a wanted man at the International Criminal Court. The Hague-based tribunal issued an arrest warrant against the Kremlin leader and one of his advisors, who is allegedly responsible for the deportation of Ukrainian children. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. The ICC's president, Pyotr Khafmansky, broke the news in a video statement explaining that the crimes being investigated involved the deportation of Ukrainian children from lands occupied by Russia. It is forbidden by international law for occupied powers to transfer civilians from the territory they live in to other territories. Children enjoy special protection under the Geneva Convention. In addition to Putin, the ICC issued an arrest warrant for his commissioner for children's rights, Maria Lvova-Belova. Russia was quick to dismiss the court's move. Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova points out that Russia is not a party to the court, so she says the arrest warrants don't have any legal meaning for Russia. Ukraine is not a member either, but granted the ICC jurisdiction after Russia launched its full-scale invasion of the country last year. Ukraine's foreign minister hailed the arrest warrant, saying, quote, the wheels of justice are turning. It made sense to start on this issue of children, says Nathaniel Raymond. He's a Yale University researcher who recently came out with a report in collaboration with the State Department detailing Russia's program to deport and re-educate thousands of Ukrainian children. These facilities stretch all the way from the Black Sea to the Pacific, well over 3,500 miles, including Siberia and Magadan, which is closer to Alaska than it is to Moscow. Raymond says the evidence that the ICC has is, in his words, about as airtight as you can get. They have the statements of the officials involved showing clear command and control and intent in a program that is systematic in scale and in operation. But don't expect to see Putin facing a trial anytime soon, cautions David Bosco, author of a book about the ICC called Rough Justice. He says the Russian leader will be safe at home, but it could be tricky for him to visit countries that are a part of the court. In some ways, the most interesting question might be how this impacts world public opinion and whether it has an, an impact in terms of the way countries, particularly outside of the West, view Putin and and view Russia's leadership. Bosco says this case raises some uncomfortable questions for the U.S. too. This is going to be another awkward moment for the United States because um, 
of the U.S. position that the ICC should not be able to prosecute um, non-member state citizens. Because it doesn't want to see Americans hauled before the court over U.S. military actions abroad. Raymond, the Yale researcher, says all nations need to work together on the case against Putin. I have been a war crimes investigator for 24 years and I've learned one major lesson, which is never underestimate who you think is going to get arrested. <laughs> and so for me, uh, you, doing this work, you have to always believe that justice, including arrest and trial and conviction, is possible. And I believe that here. He's less convinced about the deterrent effect of this announcement. Soon after Raymond released his report on the deportations, President Putin met with his commissioner on children's rights, and they talked about how she adopted a teenage boy from Ukraine, all thanks to the Russian president. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on 90.9 WBUR, abortion at issue in Poland. We'll hear from a woman convicted there for helping another woman acquire abortion pills. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, health care, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. It was a down day to end the week on Wall Street. The Dow lost one and two-tenths percent. That's nearly 400 points. S&P was down one and one-tenth percent, and the Nasdaq dropped about three-quarters of a percent. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com. And Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at BostonBallet.org. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Plenty of clouds around for the end of this St. Patty's Day, down to about 40 degrees overnight tonight. For tomorrow, should pull out another mild day, a nice day in fact, partly sunny, highs about 52. For Sunday, should be mostly sunny, breezy, and chillier, only rising to the upper 30s. 53 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Designed to be an all-in-one hiring platform with tools to help businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates they need to fill all their job openings. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZQuil Pure Z's Gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuil.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In the years since the George Floyd protests, many American police departments have found themselves short-staffed. Some big city departments say officers are leaving faster than they can be replaced. One extreme example is New Orleans. As NPR's Martin Costi reports, the NOPD has shrunk so much it's being forced to spin off some of its work to civilians. Fear of crime is unfortunately nothing new in New Orleans. But lately, even lifelong residents sound rattled. Take Dolores Montgomery. She's a rideshare driver. I am off the street every day by 4 p.m. Why is that? Because crime. I am afraid. 
Last year, New Orleans' murder rate was among the nation's worst. Even as the department was so short on officers, it put them on 12-hour shifts. Criminals, they know there's not enough police officers on the street. They know this. Police agree. Captain Mike Glasser is president of the Police Association of New Orleans. We're dealing with a 1,600-officer police department being operated by 900 officers. Almost three years after protesters around the country demanded the defunding of police, which mostly didn't happen, some departments are shrinking anyway. In New Orleans, it's because cops are retiring early, transferring to other departments, and there aren't enough qualified recruits signing up. Glasser says it's time for the department to adapt to this new reality. We really have never retooled the department. There are some things that we should probably abbreviate or eliminate temporarily in order to basically triage the crime problem. One job that the NOPD is trying to get off its plate is going to the scene of low-risk, non-injury car wrecks. That work has been contracted out to a company called On Scene Services with a small fleet of cars that look official, but they don't say police. So I'm looking at this sign here, agent on duty. Do people sometimes ask you, what does that mean? No, usually once we pull up, the likelihood is once we get out and identify ourselves that we're there to handle the accident, they get comfortable with, with while we're there. Daryl Odom is a retired New Orleans police sergeant, now one of this company's unarmed civilian agents. He looks at the city's dispatch screen at all the people who've been in accidents and are waiting by the roadside for a cop to give them a report for their insurance company. Right now they're holding 18 accidents, the oldest starting at 7.22 a.m. this morning going all the way up until 2.17 this afternoon, and it's 2.21 right now. The NOPD has not responded to any of them yet. For the last few years, OSS has had two agents out on the road taking care of many of these calls. But as the officer shortage has gotten worse, the city has agreed to expand the contract to seven agents. That's seven cars out at a time taking care of an estimated 15,000 calls a year. Company founder Ethan Cheremy says that can free up the equivalent of about 15 full-time officers, and it's an approach he says has broad backing from the city's business community. There's been a concerted effort to assist not only the city administration but the New Orleans Police Department in further civilianization. So you're going to continue to see alternative police response be divested from guys with guns over to civilians to respond to these nonviolent calls for service. And yet follow through has been slow. Last year, NOPD pledged to open 50 new jobs to civilians for duties such as fingerprinting and property crime investigations. There were more than enough qualified applicants, but six months later, the department has filled only a handful of the positions. The council has kind of been in this very weird, semi-aggressive battle with NOPD. J.P. Morell is one of the city council members who've been pushing the department to move faster. Part of accepting the reality that people do not want to go into law enforcement, traditional law enforcement, and that we're losing the battle to recruit new officers is to really lean into civilianization and finding the different things that police officers do that could be alternatively done by a civilian. NOPD wouldn't go on the record with NPR about civilianization. It said it was too short staffed to do interviews. It's also true that the New Orleans city government has been in turmoil lately as Mayor LaToya Cantrell faces a possible recall election. Still, there are some signs that some of this resistance is coming from the police themselves. Everything in moderation. 
Back at the police association, Mike Glasser says the thing to remember about civilians is that they can do only the jobs they're hired for. Unlike commissioned officers, they can't be just pulled into other duties, such as crowd control during Mardi Gras. Should we civilianize some things? Probably so, we should. Other things, you, I got to caution that that's not a long-term enduring philosophy. Enthusiasm for police civilianization has been uneven in other cities, too. The Union for Los Angeles Police Officers recently proposed that civilians should respond to more nonviolent calls, such as welfare checks and loud parties. But elsewhere, the promises have bogged down. Baltimore police, for instance, said last year that it would hire civilian investigators. Their training has yet to start. Still, in departments where recruiting keeps lagging behind attrition, some kind of restructuring seems inevitable. The only question is which jobs the police will have to give up. Martin Costi, NPR News, New Orleans. It weighs more than 10 million tons. It stretches more than 5,000 miles. And if the wind hits just right, it can wash up on shores along Florida and Mexico, where it is bad for local ecosystems and economies. We're talking about the Great Sargassum Belt, a blob of floating seaweed that scientists say could get bigger than ever this summer. And Piers Emily Olson explains why. When you look at sargassum up close, it doesn't look too threatening. Like if you pulled up a handful of blades of grass and then you like mm. threw some peas in there and those, those peas are what keeps it afloat. This is Brian Barnes of the University of South Florida. He says that in the open ocean, sargassum is harmless, even serving as a habitat for fish, birds, and crustaceans. But when the currents or wind push sargassum toward the coast, trouble can follow. This is a thick mat of floating algae. It can either cover or smother things like coral or seagrasses. And then, once it gets to shore, it decays, which can block beach access and decrease tourism. The stuff isn't just messy. It smells like rotten eggs. And it releases gases like hydrogen sulfate, which can cause respiratory issues. But it's not as simple as throwing it into a dump, either. Here's Brian LaPointe, a researcher with Florida Atlantic University. It has fairly high concentrations of arsenic. There's a concern that through leaching, it could, it could affect the groundwater, for example. He says the sargassum blooms have always been there. But since 2011, they've been growing bigger and bigger. He has a theory about why. One thing we know is that humans have greatly altered the global nitrogen cycle. We've more than doubled the amount of reactive nitrogen on our planet. <laughs> In other words, people on land are using more fertilizer, cutting down forests, and creating wastewater. He says all of that sends nitrates downriver, which eventually shoot out into the ocean. It's like food for sargassum. Combine it with the right light and temperatures, and the seaweed flourishes. It looks like this year could be a new record. It's already starting to show up on beaches around the Florida Keys and Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. But the peak is still likely a few months away. Emily Olson, NPR News. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, down in spring training. Boston got blasted by the Atlantic Braves' 8-zip today. Multiple reports indicate that the Patriots plan to release cornerback Jalen Mills. The move will save the team $5 million toward the salary cap. Meanwhile, the Pats added the tight end today. They signed Mike Gasicki from Miami. New England college basketball teams are 0-2 so far today for the NCAA tournament in the women's bracket. Worcester's Holy Cross lost to Maryland on the men's side for Montfeld to Marquette. Right now, the Yukon men are playing Iona. Teams are tied at 32 in the first half. The time is 5.30 and news headlines are coming up next. I'm Tiziana Deering, host of Radio Boston. And if your day is as hectic as mine, it's not a problem because you can download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Radio Boston. You can start from the top of the hour, all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want. Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russian President Vladimir Putin and another Russian official over the alleged forced deportation of thousands of children from Ukraine. As Terry Schultz reports from The Hague, the ICC says it chose to make the warrant public to try to deter any further abductions. ICC President Pyotr Hofmansky says Putin and his Commissioner for Children's Rights, Maria Alexeyevna Lvovibelova, are believed to have committed war crimes for the forced transfer of possibly thousands of Ukrainian children to Russia. Hofmansky notes this is illegal under international law. Countries belonging to the court are now required to arrest Putin and Lvovibelova, if possible, and send them to The Hague. This is the first time the global court has issued a warrant against a permanent member of the UN Security Council, but... The ruling appears mostly symbolic because Moscow does not recognize the court's jurisdiction or extradite its nationals. Russia's defense ministry has awarded state honors to the pilots of two fighter jets the U.S. accused of forcing down an American drone over the Black Sea this week. NPR's Charles Maines tells us from Moscow it's the latest twist raising fears of direct military hostilities between the nuclear superpowers. Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu presented state awards to the pilots with a ministry press release saying the servicemen had prevented an intruder from violating airspace restrictions Russia declared amid the war in Ukraine. The statement also repeated Russian assertions that the U.S. surveillance drone had crashed of its own accord due to sudden sharp maneuvers. On Thursday, the Pentagon released video footage that showed Russian warplanes twice spraying what appears to be fuel onto the drone as it flew in international airspace, seeming to also damage the surveillance plane's propeller. Meanwhile, Kremlin officials say crews are now working to recover the remains of the drone from the waters of the Black Sea. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. A Boston-based investment banking firm could be sold as part of the fallout from the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. SVB Securities is owned by the failed bank's parent company, SVB Financial. It used to be an independent firm. The parent company says it's considering strategic alternatives for the firm that include a possible sale. A senior executive with SVB Securities says the firm's original founder could engineer a buyout to make it independent once again. The MBTA announced today that the global speed restrictions on the entire Green Line could soon be lifted. WBR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has the update on the order that has been affecting service for a week. 
MBTA Interim General Manager Jeff Gonneville says after speed restrictions on the Mattapan trolley were lifted yesterday, the Green Line may be next. I'm optimistic that tomorrow we'll be in a position to lift the global speed restriction on the Green at start of service. Trains across the subway system were forced to slow down last Thursday after the authority found inconsistencies in track repair reports to state regulators. The Green Line is the last line in the system to restrict trains to between 10 to 25 miles per hour. Speed restrictions will continue in shorter sections of the green, orange, red, and blue lines. Gonneville advises T-Riders to allow for extra travel time. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. Governor Maura Healey is asking the legislature to approve more funding to help the MBTA find new workers and keep the employees it has. She made the $20 million request today to help the T with one of its major problems, staffing. The request is part of the governor's supplemental budget bill. Boston's new director of nightlife economy says she is looking for innovative ways to get around the T's problems and the lack of late-night public transportation. Corrine Reynolds tells WBUR she's making transportation a priority for people who want to experience Boston at night. Reynolds says she's also looking to quickly address safety in bars and nightclubs. Boston police have been warning bar and club goers to be vigilant after reports of patrons having their drinks spiked. And the Massachusetts Port Authority Board has approved spending $500 million on emission reduction projects over the next five years. In total, the agency expects to spend about $1 billion to reach the goal. No rain, but a lot of clouds around tonight, about 40 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds taking turns up around 52 degrees once again. Sunday, sunny, breezy and chilly, about 38 degrees tops. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies, from nonprofits to the Fortune 500, find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Poland's abortion laws are some of the most restrictive in Europe. Abortion is almost entirely illegal. Helping someone end a pregnancy can lead to jail time. One year ago, we first heard from an activist in Poland, the first woman to face criminal charges under Polish abortion law, for helping a woman in an abusive relationship obtain abortion pills. She was begging us, please help me somehow. Well, this week, Justyna Wiedzienska received her sentence. A judge in Warsaw gave her eight months of community service, and she joins us now. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Thank you for invitation. Well, for more than a year, you've been living with uncertainty, waiting to learn your fate. The judge could have sent you to prison for years. How are you feeling at this moment? Yes, it was a very, very tough year. I've been uh, in a courtroom for six times. After the verdict, I'm so angry. The judge said, I am guilty of help. I don't agree with this. Nobody should be criminalized for giving help. You told the judge that you do not regret providing the abortion pills to this woman. What made you decide to say that? After the hearing in February, I got a letter from Anya, uh, the person who I sent the pills. And Anya is a pseudonym, we should say. Yes. In, the, in this letter, she wrote 
that uh, I was the one of uh, one of the people who give a real help to her in a situation when everybody turned turned and their their backs away. So uh, she didn't receive uh, a help from the siblings. She didn't receive a help from the doctors. So this is why this is the only verdict I'm taking under the consideration. Hmm. I'm surprised to hear you say you're angry because some people might feel relief at being sentenced to community service rather than prison time. I wasn't uh, judged in a fair way. Hmm. What do you think being judged in a fair way would have looked like? Uh, not guilty because there was no abortion done and really for helping other person in a situation where the person really asking you and begging you for help. In this situation, you have no other choice than just help. Do you intend to continue your activism now? And if you do, could that have legal consequences? I still do it, even if I should leave the country. No, I will never stop. In the same way, I know that there is a thousand of people who do the same for me. And I'm so proud of my colleagues from Abortion Without Borders who support people with money even to travel abroad. As you know, in the United States, abortion access has been dramatically restricted over the last year. Do you have any thoughts from where you sit in Poland about what you see happening in our country? I know there are lots of uh, activists who do the same thing we do. Uh, So supporting people with information, support people with money. And I know that it could happen even a person in the United States, that somebody could be criminalized because of helping other persons. So let's learn the lessons we we got (laughs) from my court case. What is that lesson? Uh, We know who we can count on being uh, in this close relationship with the organizations who uh, fight for the human rights. These are our alliers and uh, we should be really close to, to each other, really. Like, because in my case, uh, the strength comes from network. I feel much, much braver because I know that I have people, really huge amount of people who supports. How have people in Poland responded to your case and to your verdict? Have you become a nationally recognized figure? Yes, it happens <laughs> to be uh, uh, recognized uh, because of this. and uh, Recognized in a positive way, a negative way, or both? Yes, n- yes, yes, absolutely in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Uh, because just before the, the last uh, hearing, they asked people if you do, would do the same what uh, I did. And uh, almost 50% of people answered, yes, I would help in abortion in a situation when uh, a person would um, uh, live in a violent relationship. And uh, 64% of young people between 18 and 25 age, um, they they said the same. So uh, this is as a positive way of uh, seeing this situation. And I'm so, so happy because of this, uh, because I know we help each other. I, we, I hear this everyday stories from Abortion Without Borders helpline. Colleagues call uh, to get information for, for their friends. Uh, parents called for the information for the kids and uh, partners call and ask how to help their partners. So we know it happens every day, every day around uh, 20 people asking for help for other person. They can find in the situation like I was. Justyna Wyjenska is a member of a Polish group called Abortion Dream Team. Thank you for speaking with us.
Thank you and a good day to all of you. In 1626, a father and son sat for a portrait. The father rests in an armchair, sporting a fancy mustache, a goatee, ruffled collar around his neck. The son poses beside him with rosy cheeks, a red ribbon, and elaborate lacy cuffs. You can see in the way that they are dressed, this is a very wealthy father and son. Angela Yacher curates old master paintings at the RKD Netherlands Institute for Art History. She says the artist, Cornelis de Vos, was one of the top portrait painters of his day. He was very sought after. So if you could get him to portrait your family, you were a wealthy and influential family. But there's something missing from this portrait, according to Jorgen Vadum, a consultant at the Nivegaard Collection in Denmark. The father and the son that are so affectionately holding hands, it looks like a unity in itself. You could easily imagine that this was a finished painting if you didn't have that extra careful eye. That extra careful eye led the two to pay special attention to something in the lower right-hand corner of the portrait. There were a couple of knees covered by a black striped dress in the lower corner. And we could immediately see that there is a story here that we don't know much about yet. They teamed up to investigate the story and found evidence the portrait had been sliced in two sometime in the mid-1800s, perhaps due to damage. A report about a restoration of the work decades earlier gave them another clue. It revealed that hidden under the paint in that corner was a woman's hand. Slender fingers, a couple of rings on her fingers, and she was holding beautifully embroidered uh, gloves in her hands with a red lining. They began searching the painter's repertoire for a portrait of a woman, missing her right hand, of course, and eventually they came across one titled Portrait of a Lady. It's a portrait of a lady sitting against a background with a garden to one side and some trees that matches perfectly with the painting that we have here. And when even the background, the sky, matched so perfectly, then we were pretty sure that now we've discovered her. Of course, Jörn called me and said, look at your email. I think I found uh, our missing woman. Even better, her portrait was for sale. So this opened up <laughs> the opportunity for the museum to actually purchase her and reunite the family. The paintings now hang side by side at the Nivegaard collection. The family reunited after nearly two centuries apart. Thanks for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Amazon's second headquarters were expected to bring 25,000 workers and an economic boost to the D.C. region. Now the project is on pause and residents are unsure what lies ahead. Sarah Y. Kim from member station WAMU reports. This noise might not even feel like noise by now for residents around Amazon's HQ2 in Arlington, Virginia. Today, construction workers are still busy finishing up two new office buildings, the first phase of the project. But once that's wrapped up, there'll be a bit of silence. Amazon has not confirmed when construction will resume. It is what it is. We don't know what it means. We don't know what it's going to lead to. That's Nick Freshman, a longtime resident of the area and owner of the Freshman Diner. Since Amazon's announcement, his phone has been blowing up with messages from friends and colleagues. 
There is just a really broad anxiety out there as to what is going to happen here and nationally over the next few years. But Freshman says he's not quite as anxious. After all, his diner has already weathered the COVID-19 pandemic. He says this pause in construction is not even a blip. You know, we try to keep a level head, keep our head down, and just make sure that the beer's still cold and the food still comes out on time and my staff is taken care of and happy. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that we worry about day to day. And he says his neighbors are also still optimistic about the area's future. Terry Clower directs the Center for Regional Analysis at George Mason University. He says the pause is a temporary setback, and he doesn't foresee any long-lasting negative impacts on the local economy. It actually, to me, is kind of good news because it means, you know, above else that Amazon's behaving in a business rational fashion. Clower thinks hybrid work is here to stay and that Amazon shouldn't create more space than it needs. He says Arlington already has a sizable vacant office problem. He also says local businesses could take advantage of the pause. They might be able to hire workers who might otherwise have gone to Amazon. Brett Theodos researches development and housing at the Urban Institute. Theodos says that there is a silver lining to this pause. Rents won't be shooting up as quickly. That said, it doesn't mean that rents are falling, and it doesn't mean they're not increasing. There's also inflation, and Theodos says the cost of living in Arlington is already well beyond what a lot of people can comfortably afford. Rashid Malouf is a server at Freddy's Beach Bar. He works multiple jobs to pay for his rent, more than $1,800 a month. And he's expecting it to climb to 2000 or more in his next lease term. I mean, Arlington was already super expensive, but now it's like, <laughs> it's skyrocketing. He's hoping that local leaders and Amazon do more to regulate the cost of living. As a software engineer, Malouf is interested in working for the company someday. But with the pause on construction, he isn't convinced that Amazon will keep its original number of hires. Pretty hard to believe that right now in this economic climate. And he says that would be a huge letdown for those who came to Arlington in the hopes of working for Amazon. The company, however, has said that it has not changed its plans to hire 25,000 workers for HQ2, and more than 8,000 of those workers are supposed to start their jobs at HQ2 this summer. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Y. Kim. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, Bono the Edge and members of a school choir. Join NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro and me on Sunday, March 26th at City Space for a conversation about Ari's new memoir and tales from his broadcast career. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters. Professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business, personalized to your needs. CertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. It was a tough day for the Red Sox at spring training today. They got blanked by the Braves 8-0. Sox starter Tanner Houck struck out five, but gave up four runs in four and two-thirds innings of work. 
Off-season comings and goings continue at Gillette Stadium. Multiple reports say the Patriots plan to release cornerback Jalen Mills. The move will save the team $5 million toward the salary cap. Meanwhile, the Pats added a tight end today. They signed Mike Asiki from Miami. In the forecast overnight tonight, lots more clouds around. Temperatures not too low, just about 40 degrees. The weekend is looking pretty good. Should see sunshine and clouds both tomorrow. Comfortable day, highs around 52 Sunnier but chillier on Sunday, a gusty breeze picking up, temperatures about 38 degrees. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Ruben Nielsen of Unknown Mortal Orchestra says he was inspired by his Hawaiian hula dancer mother in his music. When she's dancing, that's her real self and then everything that happens when she's not dancing is kind of like her waiting to dance again and I think that we have that in common. The singer-songwriter and the band's new double album, Five, plus all the news Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Kirsten Holmes is a senior at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C., and a member of the concert choir there. She remembers about a month ago getting a call from her choir director, Patrick Lundy, about a special gig. He was like, "Um, there's been this opportunity for you and some others to perform at NPR. I'm like, NPR... If, to my knowledge, it's Tiny Desk. I'm like, That's okay. That's all you know of NPR, Tiny yeah, Desk. I was like, just, I'm like, I'm going to wait, though. And so then the next, um, when we all met up, um, they was like, yeah, so basically y'all are going to be on Tiny Desk behind mm-hmm. Bono on the Edge. You're like, oh. I believe it's pronounced Bono. Bono. Bono and the Edge. I'm sorry. <laughs> Bono and the Edge. And we were like, wow. Okay. Yeah, that's when I first found out. That's her classmate and fellow choir member, sophomore Javon Skipper. Mm-hmm. I was like, Tiny Desk? Wait a minute. NPR? Like, I watch Tiny this desk. all the time. But did you both know you two? Did you both know who Bono was? I had found out prior, uh, but my parents do. He's like, you too? Not even like, parents, my dad. Because I know my dad was like, look him up. So I looked him up, and like I see they performed at the Super Bowl. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, they must be like big news. <laughs> yeah, yeah you Performing know. at the Super Bowl. youngins you know we, we're young so we're still learning and stuff but it's, it's just a wild moment so like one of the songs that you did with them was beautiful day it's a beautiful day Mm-hmm. That's my jam. <laughs> okay, because it's a lot of people's jam. Like oh. Obama played Beautiful Day on the campaign trail. And oh, so yeah. for you, is it just like, oh, this is a good tune? <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, I was like, oh, this is so nice, you know. But I didn't know that about Obama. Yeah. There he is. Can you throw in an ooh or something? Did Bono seem different? Was it, Did you get the sense of like, oh yeah, this is why he's one of the biggest rock stars in the world? Or were you just like, well, oh, he, he was really guy. chill, like down, down mm-hmm. to earth. Yeah, yeah, and I love how they weren't big-headed. 
mm-hmm. because I know how um, sometimes you, when you're in the presence of someone with a higher status, it could be really intimidating. And I didn't feel like any of us felt intimidation from them. It was just a really, it was like a learning experience. Like they yeah. was like, well, what do y'all think would fit, you know, good in this part? And mm-hmm. it was oh, just. Oh, wow. He asked for your input. Yeah. Yes. Like. Yeah. And one of our friends. Um, and by accident. On we accident. Didn't know, we, didn't, we couldn't get the words right. <laughs> so he accidentally sung the wrong thing. And Bono was like, oh, wait, what like did you that. just do? I like, I like that, 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 man. Like, do you, do you remember what it was? Um, the ba, it was a part in the song where it was like ba, ba, ba. Oh, yeah, the ba. same note over yeah. and over uh-huh. again. That was just one of the members yeah. of the choir came up with that on the fly. Yeah, it was an accident. He was like, I like that, man. Come on. You're on the road. But you got no day. He was like, oh, okay. It was, fu- it was funny because we all knew it was an accident. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. But then we kind of just went along with it, and Bono was like, he likes it, so we, we just did it. Even if that doesn't mean true, you've been all over, and it's been all over you. It's a beautiful day. I just know I felt really grateful to just have this opportunity mm-hmm. and grateful that I attend the school that I attend because it's like our school creates these possibilities for us because I know for sure this wouldn't happen if I wasn't at Duke. Oh, so sure. it was just a really appreciative, grateful moment. We're around the corner from uh, Duke Ellington School of the Arts. Was there any moment that you were singing with them that you got goosebumps, like a specific part of a, a song? Um, I I actually this is probably my favorite part. It, it was on um the song Walk On. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. Really it was happy. I think my moment was just seeing the people's reaction, just to allow other people to feel the enjoyment of what we you know are gifted to do, and it was just really good. At the end where it was, we were like, walk on, walk on, walk on. And then the Sopranos, walk on, walk on. Mm-hmm. I love that part, and it sounded so good. Hills that you climb, all that you can. I want to end by talking about your future as artists and musicians. Mm-hmm. Kirsten, I know you favor jazz and opera. Javon, you're more R&B gospel. What do you mm-hmm. imagine yourselves doing after you're done with high school? How do you see yourselves making music? Me, I know for sure I'm going to do Christian music. 
Um, also, opera is a, now a must-do for me, and I really just want to grow in the classical realm. I feel like I would probably, like, do both. Like, I would do gospel and R&B. I guess I just like the feeling that I can make someone's day with the gift that God gave me. Like, ever since I was younger, I just loved singing for people and making people feel better and just, like, encouraging people. Well, I'm excited to see what you both do next. Thank you Thank so you. much. Kirsten Holmes and Javon Skipper sing in the concert choir at the Duke Ellington School of the Arts in Washington, D.C. It has been great talking with you, and congratulations on your Tiny Thank Desk you debut. So much. Thank you. Choir Master Patrick is singing that part. The Tiny Desk Concert Series turns 15 next month, and you can watch the full show with members of U2 and the Duke Ellington School of the Arts Concert Choir, along with more than a thousand other Tiny Desks, at nprmusic.org. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from iDrive with Remote PC, providing remote access to PCs, Macs, and servers from anywhere, designed to assist those working from home. More at remotepc.com. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the maxim that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from the American Lung Association, with support from Sanofi, they're working to raise awareness about RSV, the leading cause of hospitalizations in all babies under one. Learn more at lung.org RSV. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Should be overcast overnight tonight, relatively mild, just about 39 degrees for a low. And for tomorrow, some sunshine should burn through the clouds. A partly sunny day, all in all, backing up to the low 50s tomorrow. And then around Sunday, brighter and cooler, should have mostly sunny skies, just under 40 degrees. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with a new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store today. It's 5.59. I'm senior business reporter Yasmin Amr. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Scientists differ from the intelligence community as to what caused the COVID pandemic. Scientists say they have strong evidence the virus came from an animal in a food market in Wuhan, China. The reason for their finding coming up on this Friday, March 17th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, the Army is faced with recruiting troubles and is dusting off one of its most popular slogans. 
As a child of the 80s, I am super excited that we are bringing back a reinvented version of Be All You Can Be. The Army's pitch for new recruits coming up. Volcanoes on Venus, signs of volcanic activity offer insights into its geologic past and future. Also... Envelope, please. It's match day, a big day in the life of future doctors. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Chinese President Xi Jinping heads to Moscow next week to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Ukraine is expected to top their agenda. But as NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the White House is raising concerns about China trying to put itself in the peacemaker role. The meeting between Xi and Putin comes as Xi has floated the idea of a peace process to end Russia's brutal war on Ukraine. But White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby strongly encouraged Xi to speak with Ukraine's president before offering up ideas to end the war. I'm not going to speak for President Zelensky. I'm speaking for us. And we don't support calls for a ceasefire right now. We certainly don't support calls for a ceasefire that would be called for by the PRC in a meeting Uh, in, in Moscow that would simply benefit Russia. U.S. officials, including Kirby, have also said they're concerned about China potentially providing lethal aid to Russia, but say it hasn't happened yet. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Republican state lawmakers in Texas are considering a bill aimed at making it easier to remove elected judges who don't enforce the law. Houston Public Media's Andrew Schneider reports while the bill is likely to pass, it may not have the effect its authors intended. Two years ago, Texas lawmakers toughened bail conditions for people accused of violent crimes. Senate Bill 21 would make failure to enforce the new bail law a firing offense. Judge Genesis Draper says a state commission already has the power to remove judges who don't follow the law. And I think that part of this is born out of frustration that the people have decided that they are going to keep their elected judges. Last year, many Republican judicial candidates in Harris County, Texas, blamed high crime rates on lax bail enforcements by Democratic incumbents. Most Republicans lost their races. I'm Andrew Schneider in Houston. The former parent company of Silicon Valley Bank has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. As NPR's David Guru reports, SVB Financial Group is hoping to auction off its other businesses. When Silicon Valley Bank imploded, it became the second biggest bank failure the U.S. has seen. California regulators shut it down. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, took it over, and it was turned into Silicon Valley Bridge Bank. So far, it has not found a buyer, and it's not part of this process, which is now underway in New York. SVB Financial says it's filing for bankruptcy so it can evaluate strategic alternatives for its other subsidiaries, including its investment bank and its wealth management business. It will also try to get rid of other assets. David Gura, NPR News, New York. Wall Street lower by the closing bell. The Dow down 384 points. The Nasdaq down 86. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The interim general manager of the MBTA, Jeff Gonneville, expects that tomorrow morning the T will lift part of the speed restriction that exists on the entire green line. It's been in place since last week. Gonneville says speed restrictions will remain in place on portions of the green line and parts of other subway lines. 
Some of these speed restrictions are going to require corrective actions and will take longer than others to, to, uh, to resolve and lift. But we are actively working on that now and working through those plans. Inspectors have been spending the past week rechecking track inspections and doing repair work. The speed restrictions were put in place after the Department of Public Utilities raised questions about the documentation the MBTA provided on track safety. U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren used a Capitol Hill hearing yesterday to push efforts to secure federal funds to replace the aging born and Sagamore Bridges. Warren is a member of the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee. She highlighted the critical economic and public safety roles the Cape Cod Canal bridges play. Warren also pointed to President Biden's budget as a critical source of funding. There's a significant $350 million down payment toward a $600 million commitment to replace the Cape Cod bridges and protect both the local economy out on the Cape and public safety. The total cost of replacing the bridges is projected to be $4 billion. Medical students in Massachusetts and around the nation are celebrating Match Day today. It's an education tradition where soon-to-be graduates find out where they're headed next for training as residents. WBUR's Arena Machavariani has more. At noon, Boston University's fourth-year medical students ripped open envelopes that contained the names of their future destinations. Some cried tears of joy. Others embraced proud family members. William Lee matched for a psychiatry program at Yale. He just became a father, too. We just have a little baby. His name is Leo, who came out two and a half weeks early. So he's two and a half weeks old. He was very excited to come to Match Day, which is why I think he came out. Med students like Lee are in demand. A Massachusetts Medical Society survey finds one in four doctors in the state is likely to leave the field within two years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavariani. Cloudy and calm overnight tonight, about 38 for a low. Tomorrow, sunshine and clouds taking turns, up around 52 degrees. Sunday, sunny, breezy and chilly, only about 38 degrees tops. 54 degrees still in the Boston area. The time is 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. There's new evidence that the COVID pandemic originated from an animal at a seafood market in Wuhan, China. Specifically, this is new genetic evidence suggesting a raccoon dog at the market was infected in the early days of the outbreak. What's more, this genetic data was spotted last week on a public database, then taken down shortly after by Chinese officials, which is sparking its own controversy controversy and renewing claims that China's government is still withholding crucial evidence about the pandemic's origins. Let's bring in NPR science correspondent Michaeline Duclef. Hey there. Hi, Mary Louise. So the plot thickens because just a few weeks ago, the U.S. Department of Energy was offering support to the theory that this was a lab leak in Wuhan that was behind the outbreak. Um, There was all this evidence on the flip side for an animal origin, and now you're saying there's even more evidence? That's right. That's right. You know, there are a few caveats. Scientists haven't published this, these findings and they haven't been peer reviewed. The findings were presented at a closed door meeting with the World Health Organization on Tuesday. And what is the evidence? 
Yeah, so back in January 2020, right when COVID was exploding in Wuhan, Chinese scientists went into the Huanan seafood market looking for signs of the virus. Remember, that's the giant market where a few stalls were selling live wild animals. Right, that's the market, right, where the first big COVID outbreak took place? Exactly. And near a particular stall, scientists found genes from SARS-CoV-2 and live virus. It was on a bunch of surfaces, including a cage, a drain, and butchering equipment. This is the stall selling the wild animals. And what's new here is now an international team of, team of scientists have found that this genetic data also contained a large amount of DNA from animals, including a raccoon dog. This DNA is mixed together with genetic material from the virus. Mixed together. Okay, so animal genes and virus genes mixed together. That means the raccoon dog was infected with COVID? Yeah, so I asked that particular question to Angela Rasmussen. She's a virologist at the University of Saskatchewan. She helped analyze this new data, and she said, you know, we, we do not know that yet. We don't have proof of the so-called smoking raccoon dog. We just have the evidence of the animals uh, in the same part of the market where we know that there was virus. Um, before we move on, Michaeline, I keep getting hung up on the detail. What, what actually is a raccoon dog? Yes. So actually, it's not a raccoon or a dog. Huh. It's most closely related to foxes. And yes, yeah, so this new data isn't proof that an animal was the source of the outbreak. But here's what's so tantalizing about it. The samples had a lot of animal DNA in them, more than human DNA. And as Rasmussen told me, this suggests the virus came from an animal versus a person. Scientists know that raccoon dogs, they're wild animals, are highly susceptible to COVID and they shed the virus into the air. What about the fact that we're only hearing about this evidence now, um, but China clearly had it. Does that mean China was holding on to, was withholding this evidence? Absolutely. Last week, Chinese scientists posted the genetic data to a public database briefly and then took it down. These are samples taken in January 2020 and analyzed at least by 2022, and China has, hasn't previously released them. But a scientist working with Rasmussen had been watching that database, and she saw the data go up, and she saw it get removed. And by then, she and others had already downloaded the data, which shows, as many have been saying, that the Chinese government has been withholding information about the origins. Here's Dr. Maria Van Kerkhoff from the WHO Today calling for more transparency. The big issue right now is that this data exists and that it is not readily available to the international community. This is first and foremost absolutely critical. Not to mention that it should have been made available years earlier. All right. Reporting there from NPR's Michaeline Duclef. Michaeline, thanks. Thank you. The Army, which fell 25% short of its recruiting goal last year, has rolled out a new marketing campaign. And while most of it is fresh, as Jay Price of member station WUNC reports, one part is familiar. The Army unveiled its new branding with a sizzle reel. It features commanders and other soldiers talking about the possibilities being an American offers and revives a slogan the Army hadn't used in more than 20 years. Be all you can be. Be all you can be. This iconic tagline ran for two decades through the 1980s and 90s, an eternity in advertising. Originally, it was accompanied by an irresistible earworm of a jingle. Those original ads began running in 1981. 
that is the moment of Army advertising that people look back to with nostalgia. Historian Beth Bailey is the author of America's Army, Making the All-Volunteer Force. The draft had ended just a few years earlier. The Army was still struggling with the transition to solely volunteers, trying not only to find enough recruits, but bring in better qualified ones. And it badly wanted to reverse deep image problems lingering from the Vietnam War. The move to a new recruiting slogan and a new recruiting campaign was meant to really recast the Army. After a run of uninspiring ads, it settled on what's regarded in the ad world as one of the greatest campaigns of the 20th century. Because America calls for nothing less. So you can be all you can be. 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 Now, that line is back, in ads crafted for different times and different potential recruits. The rebranding has been in the works for years, but at the official unveiling, Secretary of the Army Christine Wormuth said the rollout was accelerated by several months because of the recruiting troubles. We in the Army, and frankly all of the military services, are facing the most challenging recruiting landscape in decades. So it is a perfect time to be launching our new brand. And as a child of the 80s, I am super excited that we are bringing back a reinvented version of Be All You Can Be. Despite the tagline's nostalgia-inducing past, she said recycling it was based on substantial market research. It showed young people are looking for a sense of purpose and a way to build community. So the phrase works for them as well as their parents and others who might influence their career decisions. This was not just sort of a let's reach back to a thing that, you know, we all remember and like. Uh, it, it was put through its paces against other alternatives, but it resonated. It resonated by far the best with audiences of all ages. Army leaders said the rebranding and marketing campaign also targets a cultural gulf that's widened for decades. Fewer families have ties to the military, leaving fewer young people familiar enough with it to consider enlisting. Major General Alex Fink leads the Army's marketing office. This is more than a recruiting campaign. The brand refresh and the creative executions are about reintroducing America to its army. And if you have the will to make the world the best it can be, the army has a place for you. The new campaign is just one way the Army is tackling its recruiting problem. It's also offering incentives for recruiters, bigger bonuses to new soldiers, and promotions for some troops who refer enlistees. But recruiters still have their work cut out. Their target number this year is even higher than last year. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price. Time now for My Unsung Hero, our series from the team at Hidden Brain. My Unsung Hero tells the stories of people whose kindness left a lasting impression on someone else. Today's story comes from Shri Pishorodi. A few years ago, Pishorodi, her daughter, and her mother flew to India together. On that long flight, Pishorodi told her daughter what to expect. I told my daughter, you know, in India it's crowded, you have to stick with me and never trust the police officers or the auto rickshaw drivers because everybody wants a bribe and they'll try to cheat you and you know, you have to be careful. So once we reached India, you know, I packed up our passports, our documents and all of that into a little bag, a briefcase, and we loaded ourselves into an auto rickshaw to head down to the train station. All three of us got out. I paid the auto rickshaw driver I turned around to make sure my mom and my daughter were next to me. And 
Before I knew it, the auto rickshaw driver drove away with our briefcase that had everything in it. And I just, my heart sank. I started quivering. I didn't know what to do. And my mom, who was around 70 that time, said, you know what? I'm going to go to the police station. And my daughter and I were standing there at the foot of the steps to the train station. And before we knew it, a bunch of auto rickshaw drivers came to us and they were asking us, what is the problem? So we told them we left our bag in the auto rickshaw. And I was just so surprised because immediately they began going around the town and the marketplace and all that, trying to locate this auto rickshaw driver. And then as we were doing this, my mom drives up with this big entourage of police officers and they also go searching out in the city. As all this chaos is going on, the auto rickshaw driver who dropped us off comes slowly back to the train station and says, you left your bag in the car and everything was in place, the cash, the passports, the documents. I just immediately thought of what I told my daughter that day when we were flying to India to never trust auto rickshaw drivers and police officers. It just renewed my faith in humanity, but it also taught me that, you know, miracles really do happen. Shri Pishirodi lives in Tracy, California, and you can find more stories from My Unsung Hero wherever you get your podcasts. To share the story of your unsung hero, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to myunsunghero at hiddenbrain.org. Support for My Unsung Hero comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com slash public. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up on Marketplace, the news of Silicon Valley Bank's fall was first spread in group chats made up of tech and startup founders. The anxiety of possibilities can sometimes outpace the truth because people share it because they're anxious and they want to figure out whether it's you know correct or not or they're fired up and they want to take an action. That's coming up on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30 and coming up in about five minutes, March Madness and the Women's Game. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. Some slipping and sliding on Wall Street today. The Dow lost one and two-tenths of a percent. That's nearly 400 points. S&P was down one and one-tenth percent. NASDAQ dropped about three-quarters of a percent. A Newton Biotech is putting on hold its efforts to develop a drug to treat hot flashes in postmenopausal women. Acer Therapeutics reported today a drug it created was not able to decrease the frequency or severity of hot flashes in a clinical trial. It says it will now focus on a drug to treat disorders that prevent the body from filtering toxins from the blood. Shares in Acer Therapeutics fell 57% in trading today. This is WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com.
Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Still pretty mild in the Boston area. 53 degrees now. Lots of clouds overnight tonight down to about 40. Then tomorrow we should pull out another mild day. Partly sunny skies reaching about 52. For Sunday, mostly sunny, breezy, and chillier. Highs only in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Margulies Peruzzi, designing buildings and inspired workplaces that help companies reach their goals. Hybrid workplace strategy reports and more at MPArchitectsBoston.com. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. By most any measure, Venus is a hellscape. Crushing pressures, a toxic atmosphere, surface temperatures hot enough to melt lead... But we actually don't know much about the forces shaping Venus. New research out this week offers a new volcanic insight. Science reporter Ari Daniel has more. Despite all its hostility, Venus, our nearest planetary neighbor, is pretty similar to Earth, so much so that University of Alaska Fairbanks planetary scientist Robert Herrick calls it our true sibling in the solar system. Aside from Earth, it's the only one that has sort of true mountain ranges and huge variety of volcanic features. Features like lava fields, canals carved by molten rock, and hundreds, if not thousands, of volcanoes. So it's clear that Venus is volcanically active, but it's not clear exactly how active. The time between eruptions could be months, years, or tens of thousands of years. Herrick set out to try to narrow down that time window by searching for evidence of recent volcanic activity. He pored over radar surface imagery collected by the Magellan spacecraft in the early 90s. It's a needle in a haystack search without any guarantee that there's a needle, right? He focused his search around the highest volcano on Venus, Mat Mons, named after the Egyptian goddess of truth and justice. And after a couple months of looking, he found something. So can you see a, you're looking at PowerPoint, hopefully? Herrick fires up a slide with two side-by-side black and white images taken eight months apart of the same spot on the north side of the volcano, each one some 15, 20 miles across. Herrick points out a pockmark, its event, the area where a volcano erupts, discharging its lava, ash, and rock. But the shape of that vent differs between the two images. The outline has changed and things actually gotten larger and looks shallower as well. That is, sometime during 1991, Herrick speculates the volcano erupted, forming a lava lake within the vent. Of course, I could have gotten very lucky and seen the only thing that happened in the last million years on Venus. But I think the reasonable interpretation suggests that Venus is relatively Earth-like in the frequency of volcanic eruptions. Around places like Hawaii and Iceland, Herrick and his colleague published their findings in the journal Science. They hope it'll help researchers understand how Venus has evolved geologically over the last four and a half billion years and where it might be headed. 
It is nice to have a visual confirmation of the volcanic activity on Venus, but given that this was something we had speculated, it's not shocking to have this paper come out. Clara Souza Silva is a quantum astrochemist at Bard College and wasn't involved in the research. Still, she says this confirmation helps us understand what to expect in Venus's atmosphere. A planet that has a lot of volcanic activity has access to these extreme pressures and temperatures below the surface that can produce molecules that are really unusual and otherwise really hard to make. NASA's currently got two missions to Venus in the works, missions that will now be informed by these new findings. We don't just think it's an active planet, we know it's an active planet right now. Herrick's working to develop an instrument for those upcoming missions to monitor volcanic activity on Venus. He's pretty confident now it'll see something once it's deployed. It just has to survive the infernal planet long enough to make its measurements. For NPR News, I'm Ari Daniel. It is officially March Madness. Both the men and women's NCAA basketball tournaments are underway. The men's first round started yesterday, the women's today. Now, a data point here. Last year, the women's final game was the most watched in nearly two decades. Viewership for the women's tournament overall was up 16% from the year before. So, a surge in attention from fans, less of a surge when it comes to media coverage and resources for players. Joining me now is Chantel Jennings. She's senior writer for women's basketball for The Athletic. Hey there. Hey, Mary Louise. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you with us. Would you agree with what I just said, that it seems like fans are up for this, that there is growing interest in women's college basketball? Absolutely. I think just if you look at the numbers, (laughs) obviously back that up. Um, I'm someone who lives part of my professional life on Twitter. Um, Just the following that has happened there the NIL deals, the name, image, and likeness deals that have happened for women's basketball players over the last two years, all of it speaks to the growing popularity of the sport. Huh. So this, the NIL, this is um, college athletes can now make money off their name, their image, their likeness. That's that's across college sports. Why has it impacted women's basketball? Speaking with a lot of experts, you know, coming into it, the main thing was that Women, uh, specifically college-aged women, are really good at social media. Um, They have a knack for TikTok, they have a knack for Instagram, and so they've sort of been able to harness that at a time when so much of companies' marketing schemes and plans have sort of gone to social, and that's where a lot of college-aged women are. Are there other factors at play here, other reasons why people might be paying more attention to the women's game? One adage that I've always said, sort of inspired by a very famous movie, is if you broadcast it, people will watch. We've seen more and more broadcasted games for the women's tournament, for the women's season overall. They've been put more on sort of the higher networks, the main ESPN instead of sort of ESPN News or ESPN2. This will actually be the first time in almost 20 years that the national championship game is broadcast on ABC or a main network instead of being on cable. Um, And that matters a lot because that's another 40 million households or so across the U.S. And Hmm. so you're just seeing more of these games being put in a place where people can consume them. What about resources? I'm remembering that scandal a couple of years ago when images that made the rounds on social media showed this massive disparity in the size of the weight room that athletes could use during March Madness, that the men had this big fully stocked weight room and the women's was like, it was puny, I think is fair to say. Mary Louise, I think puny is a very kind way to put what the NCAA (laughs) had done. What word would you use? They had, I believe... 
Um, non-existent, probably. They had, I think it was one stack of dumbbells, like four, four different weights. And then um, my favorite part was that it was like 11 yoga mats, which isn't even enough for a full team. Like they didn't even provide enough yoga mats so that everyone on the team could do yoga if that's what they wanted to do. The main thing that we really need to talk about, though, is sort of the TV broadcast rights. And those are coming up again for the women's tournament. The main difference here is that the men's tournament has been sold on its own for the last, you know, several decades, whereas the women's NCAA tournament has been packaged with 28 other championships um, since it was sold to ESPN two decades ago. And so the women in this way really haven't been able to capitalize on that success, on that growing popularity that we were just talking about, because it's been packaged with track and field championships, gymnastics championships, softball and baseball championships. There was the Kaplan report that came out in the wake of that weight room scandal that suggested that the women's tournament alone would be worth somewhere between 81 and 112 million dollars in tv broadcast rights its current deal right now with espn with the 28 other championships is just 34 million dollars a year chantelle jennings covers women's basketball for the athletic thank you thanks mary louise this is npr news This is 90.9 WBUR. If you're going to stay in the St. Patrick's Day spirit for the rest of the weekend, then turn to The Common. Our podcast has your rundown of the best places to catch live Celtic music during St. Patrick's Day weekend. Find The Common on your podcast app. New England college basketball teams are 0 for 2 so far in action today in the NCAA tournament. In the women's bracket, Worcester's Holy Cross lost to Maryland. On the men's side, Vermont came up short to Marquette. UConn men will try to get in the win column. They're in the second half of their matchup with Iona. It's 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's Don Quixote, returning for the first time in more than 10 years, on stage now through the 26th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.